Hello, this is Peter Jonathan Robertson with the 96th edition of the PJ Archive. It's an interview I did with the globally loved and admired actor, author and raconteur Peter Ustinov, who was British but of Russian, German, Polish, Italian, French and Ethiopian descent. As an actor, he was best known from movies like Quo Vardis, Spartacus, Top Carpi, and three Agatha Christie adaptations in which he portrayed the Belgian detective Hercule Poirot. Peter Ustinov died in 2004 at the age of 82. My interview with him took place in 1989 in London where he was promoting a book called The Disinformer. I began by asking him what else he was up to work-wise. Well, not very much. The project, very difficult to say. They've reprinted two of my novels. Well, there aren't any more than two at the moment, but two of them. And uh, the new book, all at the same time. So I'm here for the launching party tonight and then going on all sorts of the usual televisions and Southampton and Aberdeen and uh, all that stuff. Then the book comes out in New York in October, so that I'm there doing the same thing. And then later in October, the book comes out in Canada, so I'm there doing the same thing, all with different publishers, mm. and different imprints. Are you, are you writing any more at the moment? I've nearly finished a novel, which will be next year. And what's that about, briefly? Or I can't really tell. It's called The Old Man and Mr. Smith. Is that a working title, I suppose? No, I think that'll be it. Right. Yeah. Do you sort of constantly think of ideas as, as you're going around the world or whatever you're doing? Well, inevitably, yes. I mean, they, they take some sort of shape and then it becomes... I don't know how it works. I'm at the receiving end of all this. But do, you, do you kind of feel you've got to produce so much work at a time? Or no. do you have the ideas first and then think, no, I'm going to produce something? Yeah. Yeah, I'm in no hurry anymore. Life seems much shorter when, uh, when you're uh, 20. Now it still seems much too short, but not shorter. You also done this Peter and the Wolf project, haven't you, recently? Oh, that's that's another one, yes, yeah. yes. That comes out now too, round about right. now. But that was that's a, I mean, that was that doesn't take very much time. So sort of narration or something. Yes, Peter and the Wolf's always a yeah. narration with the orchestra. And uh, what else? I've got another book coming out in Germany at the same time. Well? No, it's a new translation of my memoirs. These two short stories, which are, is that okay to call them short stories? They're, they're really or? long stories, because right, they're really right. very short novels. Right, right. right. How did the ideas come about? Were they sort of sudden flashes of inspiration, or have they been thinking about them for some time? I don't know how these things work out, but a, an idea suggests itself and then it develops. And uh, since you're your own first audience, uh, you're, you're both receiver and uh, propagator. Uh, I have no idea of the process that go into it. I don't really want to know, otherwise it may stop. Mm. <laughs> Do you kind of read your books years later and think, uh, you know, and, and remember all the things, or do you, do you just once you've written them, that's it? Uh, it well, it's not sometimes. I mean, with these, the, the two that have been reprinted now, one's 1961, 1961 the other one's 1971, and uh, I started reading them again uh, with, uh, with great interest and amazement. And I've just got... I had a play about over... Th well, in the 50s, I wrote a play, and it was done at the Bristol Old Vic, twice, I think, and on the road, but it never came to London, 
nothing ever happened to it. And I played it on American television. It was about the French Revolution. And I played Danton in, 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 my, in the play on the American television with George Scott playing Robespierre. That's quite a document. I don't think it exists anymore. It's just been done in Germany with tremendously good press. All those sort of things are, are very gratifying. When you think a thing is lost and you forget all about it, and suddenly you see this and they say, uh, the main newspaper in Hamburg says, uh, it's uh, played by a uh, first-rate company. This is probably a very important play. But even under these conditions, it's very successful. And then one should see it twice in order to extract all the juices from it. I mean, it's, all this is very, very... Again, I don't really feel any paternity towards it because I'd given it up as a lost issue and uh, the British press was never as keen as that. So that's, oh, that's always very joyous. In the first of these novellas, there's a chap who sort of takes advantage of his use of Arabic and starts causing a few problems with the press and things like that. Um, have you ever took it, taken advantage of your um, use of languages and, and sort of created a few problems for people for a laugh? Oh, I see. Well, I, not consciously, really. No, because those things are liable to backfire. It's... Uh, it did with him, yes, exactly. I remember arriving in New, in New York for the first time and bringing a small car from Italy, a little Alfa Romeo, and I drove it from New York to Ottawa. And uh, I must have been going on at about 80 miles an hour or so, and suddenly I saw in the mirror a police car behind me, quite a way behind me with this blue light. And so I went faster, and so did he. And I came round a corner of the freeway, and there was a Howard Johnson road and I rushed up the ramp and hid among the bigger cars. And the police car sailed past with a siren wailing. And I went in, had an ice cream, got out, looked at my map and saw that I could leave the freeway and rejoin it about ten miles on, which I did. And at the place where I rejoined it, all the police were waiting, munching, chewing gum. And the man came up to me and said, What did you in a small blue sports car? Exceeding 95 mile an hour back there. And I said to him, Scusa, non parla inglese, sono italiano, dovrebbe andare a Ottawa. And he said to me, Non era lei in questa piccola macchina azzurra. <laughs> he was an Italian cop. Well, there you are. <laughs> so it doesn't always work. Yeah, very often, though, when people are, if somebody's being rude about someone in a foreign country, they'll start rabbiting off and they're not realising that you actually speak their language. Oh, yeah. Have you ever caught people out? Oh, yes. It doesn't happen very often, but you always uh, put them out of their misery and at the same time into their misery by <laughs> saying, excuse me, yeah. in so their language. Yeah. Yes. yes. They don't know how many I speak. And I learnt them all when I was already an adult, so... Why did you learn them all? I think, well, but, but no, just by chance. I never studied anything like that. Do you find that because you're such a... So, so very observant of people and often sort of mimic them in some ways. Do you find that people are often scared of you? I've never found anybody to be scared of me at all, except my own children, of course. Now, I can't think why. They're just uh, a little awestruck occasionally. Or well, they were. I hope they've got over it now. I don't really understand why at all, because I was always very indulgent and mild with them. Still, they're still a bit scared of me. Well, they're, they're uh, on their guard. Yes. What do they do? What are their names and ages and what do they do? Well, the eldest one is Tammy. She's an actress and she lives in Dorchester. And then the next one is also a daughter, Pavla, 
She lives in Hollywood, writes scripts. Then my son, he's a sculptor, and he lives in Paris with his wife and daughter. And uh, then the youngest one is a jeweler and lives in London. So they're widely scattered, but I see them quite often. Quite a close family there. Oh, oh, yeah. Oh, I can say, yeah, I can say that again. Yes, yeah, close, yes. You sort of get together at Christmas time and stuff. No, we try and avoid that. <laughs> yes, I see them separately. It's much yeah. better. <laughs> Where do you actually live these days? I live in Switzerland and in Paris. With a wife like that, you have to live in Paris. <laughs> Very difficult. How did you meet her? I met her on the tennis court at the BBC Sports Club in London. Yes. Oh. <laughs> I didn't play it very well that day. Can you remember it well? Oh, yes. Yes, I remember it. Would it take a long time to nurture? Or? Uh, it took a long time to nurture, simply because uh, she went back to France, and uh, then I lost sight of her. For, uh, and I was uh, married for 17 years to somebody else. And we only got together again after that was over. So, it, in a sense, it's very romantic, because it started a really very long time ago. Does your wife go with you everywhere you go? No, not quite, but uh, but to most places, if she's interested enough, uh, she goes everywhere. I mean, I don't know, I wouldn't ask anybody to do what I do, because I'm just compelled by, by circumstances very often to travel a great deal. But uh, she was in China, we were in China together, and uh, when I did my Russian series, she came three times separately. So the whole of the summer we were together, and, uh, and really now I've just been in... Austria, but she didn't come there, but she came here, and uh, I have to go to Prague on the 26th, and she's going to go, she's going to come there. But uh, does she like travelling, full stop? And presumably you do, because you're always on the go. No, but I mean, there are so many, th nowadays, um, if you have a book coming out, you simply have to back your hunch and, uh, yeah. and do the necessary, they expect it of you, and I think they're quite right. I don't believe in kind of turning out a book from a mountaintop and just sitting there. I think you have to, if you have the capacity for being able to uh, to influence the outcome, I think it's really in your own interest to do so. Is Switzerland your favourite place? It's a wonderful place of being left alone. You know, in a, a crowded metropolis, I don't think I could do anything at all, eventually. Mm -hmm. Stifle your creativity? No, it isn't even a question of that. It's just you have to have some sort of detachment. Mm -hmm. And I've always put it this way, that if you... If circumstances compel you to spend so much of your time on the stage or in the public view, you simply have to live in the wings, because otherwise the strain is too great. And when I still lived in London, I mean, it, it was, it's almost, even now it's almost unbearable, the amount of things you're asked to do, the amount of charity things, the amount of lunches, dinners. You can't be rude all the time and, and take a superior attitude somehow. I feel embarrassed to do that, but I'm asked to do things the whole time. Sure. And quite flattering, though, it, it is flattering, but it's awfully exhausting. Yeah. When I, before I left, there was a time when suddenly soldiers used to appear on my doorstep, and uh, I said, what, "What can I? What can I do for you?" And they said, "Well, you're part of an army uh, initiative test." And some idiot had had this bright idea that the soldiers could had either to go to get to Boulogne and back on sixpence and find some ingenious way of doing it or else have tea with me. Huh? This got on my nerves terribly. I must say I thought it was very really funny the first time, but after it happened ten times, <laughs> always groups of two looking sheepish. And I said, What's the matter? I couldn't get to Boulogne. Well I thought it's simply have a tea with you. So eventually I put a couple of tea leaves in, in an envelope 
and wrote a letter to the colonel saying this is to certify that whereas I didn't have time to t- have tea with them, I gave them some leaves to make their own. <laughs> <laughs> and it took a really superhuman effort to put a stop to it. Where does your heart belong, this country? It doesn't belong to any country. I think the whole business of roots and all that is really... It's, a, it's, a, it's very interesting, but it doesn't really affect anybody. It doesn't affect me. Do you think you'll ever tire of buzzing around the world? Well, I don't buzz around the world all the time. I spent the whole of the summer in, uh, in one place working on a book. Yeah. And uh, I had a couple of weeks on the boat. But uh, otherwise, I spend it very willingly at home because it's so marvellous in the summer. It's marvellous in the winter too, but the summer's particularly attractive and pleasant. And if, you're, if you've got an idea, you're really... Uh, I've got an answering machine on all the time because... Mm-hmm. You have to protect yourself even then. You recognise everywhere you go, in every country. Quite a lot. Did you find that life was more exciting when you were young, or were you still... Oh, no. No. I think it's more exciting now, because... uh, Well, I think probably I have a little uh, less energy, at least I have to be. But even then, it doesn't really matter. You know the machine, and you know what you're dealing with. And... uh, The machine being your body, is it? Yeah, yeah. Do you pace yourself very carefully? Yes, I try not to do anything unreasonable because it really, I think it's just silly to run any risks. You're a keen fanatic at all. No, not fanatic because I think that can be dangerous too. Mm. Work the other way. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, although, you, as I say, you travel quite a lot, you're still quite a settled person now, aren't you? Oh, absolutely. Yes. And I'm not a very uh, stress laden person. Because well, you're quite settled family wise, aren't you? Yes. Um, artistic people say that uh, being settled doesn't help their creativity. Perhaps they'd rather be unsettled. No, I don't think so. I think it helps a great deal. Helps you? Yeah. Yes. In, in what way do you think? How does it help? Well, because you're, you, you feel safe in a way. You feel safe. My kids are all grown up now, so I'm still very interested in what they're up to. But uh, they're on their own. They've got their own characters, their own friends and so on. And we see each other very often, so I don't feel isolated from that. And I, I see what I want to do and want to write and so on with, with of the kind, a kind of clarity which I never had really mm. earlier. What do you feel you want to do more of now, acting, directing, writing? No, I prefer writing. I think it's the most lonely of professions, but it's the most fascinating when it comes off. Do you mind the loneliness or do you love oh, it? Oh, I love it. Because you're crowded so much the rest of the time. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Escape. Exactly. I'm very near the end of a new book, and I know that I can't finish it before November. I wanted to finish it during the summer. I didn't quite make it. And you can't force it. You can't force it. It's like uh, running a vineyard, which I also uh, happen to have, a small one. But you have to know when the right time is to, yeah. to pluck the grapes. And to Do you have a favourite room to write in? Do you lock yourself away? I have my own, my own room at home, which has no view. Mm. It's at the back of the house, so there are no distractions. But I can always move between there and the and the drawing room, the little drawing room under the roof of where the spare rooms are, and uh, I can go from one to the other, and the fax machines in the corridor, and the, all those little yeah. nonsenses. But of all the, the things you've done, do you, you, do you look back on your writing as, as what you're most proud of, or do you enjoy it all? Well, it's easy to see. You can't. I mean, in order to see a performance, you'd have to put it onto the videotape or whatever it is. So. Obviously, I think uh, 
In my passport it says author, actor. That's my only only place I can give vent to that vanity without giving offence. Do you think you are quite vain? No, but I think that... No, I'm not particularly vain, but I think that uh, I'm... Uh, I love being thought of as an author. And of course I've been... Uh, I think what's probably influenced me is that one of my books has had a very large success in uh, the Soviet Union, uh, which is the only country I know of where they recognize authors uh, in the street. Oh, right, yeah, <laughs> yes. yeah. And uh, the fact that that was such a, a big success gave me an enormous amount of, of confidence. And lots of things happen at my age which suddenly give you a, a kind of latter-day early evening confidence, which you're not expecting at all. After all, if you've lived a fairly long, active life, and you remember certain things, and you suddenly run into people who say, oh, I shall never forget that uh, moment, I saw it in Leicester, when you opened the door and said, hello, mother, and, oh, I remember the moment, but I can't remember much attached to it. And then I remember thinking, well, I think this is a good moment, and I wish more people had bad, doesn't matter, that. And suddenly you find people have picked up your butt ends mm. all over the world and remember little... Mm. And the fact that one person remembers it is absolutely miraculous. You think, how can I come to this shedding these little bits of Kleenex all over the place? And people pick them up with affection and say, oh, that, oh yes. Uh, of course, I didn't see it in Cardiff. I only saw it in Leicester. Did you do the same thing? Uh, all sorts of little variations mm. of the same thing. I fascinating. A lot of your reputation is as a raconteur as well. Are you, are you proud of that reputation? As much as no, I'm not, I'm not proud of anything like that because it's something that uh, I presume I've been given to play with. Or it's something you, you hone into something. Into, into a are you quite careful about telling a different story each time you do a public? Oh, Lord, I can't bear the idea that anybody's heard anything yeah. before. Has that ever happened? Have you ever thought, oh, God, somebody said, well, you got your punchline before you did? Oh yes, that's happened, and also, but then it also <coughs> happens that people say, tell that story, I'd like to oh, hear yeah. it again. And they do on chat shows, don't they? Yeah, exactly. It's a strain on your memory because you don't remember the story that that man wants. Mm. And usually the passage of time, their own uh, memories cheat them, yeah. and they, they tell you something absolutely the wrong way around about something quite different, and said, well, you told me that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you can't recognize not, your own no, story. You can't. Well, it's not right. So. You said you want to concentrate on your writing mainly, are you going to do much more acting then? Well, if I'm asked to do acting, I'd do it, because it's, mm. uh, it makes the rest very much easier. Mm. Are there any films coming up there? Well, there's one they're trying to raise the money for, I hope they do. But they've been told that it's difficult to raise a film costing only $7 million. Oh, it's easier to, to find backers for something costing $21 million, so I suggested they should pay me, perhaps. $14 million, mm. and uh, it would become an expensive enough film to be Jack worth Nicholson investing in. Yeah. Well, they thought that wasn't... They were thinking it over. Well, <laughs> you, can you tell us a bit about this film? Or? It's, a, it's a very good script. It's one of the very few times, in fact, the only time I can remember, receiving a script out of the blue, which is absolutely excellent. It's called The Man Who Loved Hitchcock. And it's a kind of thriller in which Hitchcock is a central figure. And... Uh, are you playing him? Yeah. And suddenly people start dying left and right, and he realizes it's somebody who is so deeply reverential that he's basing the murders on the film. Yeah, yeah. And uh, it, it becomes very exciting. Mm. It's, it's set in uh, in Hollywood in the 1950s. Mm. Do you 
find that most people remember your Poirot roles? Well, younger people remember those. Older people remember Quo Vadis very often. Spartacus too, yes. Or We're No Angels, another one that was there. And Top Tappy. Oh, what would you most like them to really about film wise? I don't know. Are you going to do another Poirot, though, or is that. Um, well, that's up to them. I don't think. I, I, I don't think the last one went very well. I'm not sure. Mm. I never bothered to find out figures and things. You did I a very successful um, audience with on LWT, yeah. which went down extremely well. How about do I mean if you thought of doing a one-man show around Britain or in the West End or anything like that? Because that surely would be very much in demand. I have. I've been asked to do it. I've been asked to do it several times. And I will eventually. I just want to keep that for the rainy day up to a point. Uh, yes, it would go down well. I think it's a good thing to do. <laughs> but I know it's a thing I can do at any time. Mm. And so I, I, I was. They asked me whether I should do it in November already. But I can't really. Finish in December. And anyway, I want to finish the book. It's to me most important. Do you like watching yourself on screen? Do you watch your films? Yes. No. The only thing that happens is that uh, if I watch Quo Vadis set, uh, and I suddenly go out on the balcony and start making a speech to the people of Rome, I get in a panic because I said I say to myself on the screen, "Don't go out there, for us you don't know the lines." Because a lot of time has passed since. Yeah. And it's very strange when you come out with long sentences you can't remember. Yeah. That's very alarming. Mm. You've, got, you've got a very good capacity for remembering things. Yes, but I've also got a very good capacity for forgetting. <laughs> you did a very good impression of Ronald Reagan, which is always very popular. Mm. Um, now that he's out of the limelight, are you doing a George Bush right now? Yeah. Obviously much more difficult. I'm trying to identify George Bush. He's difficult because there's nothing there yet. Nothing really. Mm. Not palpable. But he's very... Yeah. He's very sidelong. He's yeah. very strange. We are convinced that the rugs are being pushed, and we don't want it to come back to us. Everything's illustrated mm. in some terrible way. That's a new American thing, as though, as though you're deaf or mm. a native. They say, we want to concentrate on the wider issues. <laughs> they illustrate everything, yeah. the kind of swimming gesture. Yeah. <laughs> and he has a great love of anger. He's always... So I'm working on it. Do you have a favourite impression that you do? No, I think Reagan gives me the great pleasure because right. he's such a such a tentative and yes. he can't get it out and, and he wobbles yeah. endlessly and eventually gets out. Well, <laughs> it's so inadequate, you know. Is he a nice guy then? He's so widely considered a nice guy. Yeah. I, I can't really <laughs> talk about that. Yeah. I just stare at him with disbelief. <laughs> Are you, are you always playing around with your... I'm not playing around at all. <laughs> when you're with your wife, do you, do you joke around a lot with No, you? we don't. We're just terribly serious and awfully dull. We only liven up when people like you come and break into our lives and force us to adopt attitudes. We wouldn't dream of being so close to each other, not in life. She's got a good sense of humour. Yes, thank God. <laughs> <laughs> do you think she needs one to be with you? Oh, I don't know. I don't know. I, w I wouldn't think of myself in those terms. I'm much more uh, adaptable. Do you have your serious moments? Though? Oh God! I think my whole life is extremely serious. Except my way of being serious is to be. Uh, if I don't try to make people laugh, they're raw. If I try to make them laugh, they're absolutely stony. So I'm as serious as possible. You have a lot of uh, influential friends or powerful people that you know. 
are they very close friends or is it just sort of um, public image? Well, have you ever been close friends with an influential person? Can't say I, I don't have. think it's possible. Really? I don't know. Well, it depends who, who is, for instance. Well, you know, lots of politicians and businessmen and all that sort of thing you're often photographed with or seen with. Well, so I don't... Do you have quite a small collection of clo very close friends? Or I think uh, in life your friends become fewer and fewer and better and better. I think there's a tendency to be fewer acquaintances. Do you have many lifelong friends, you know, people you've known since childhood? Yes. I suppose so, but not that many, of course. Living, uh, living far from England doesn't really help that, that image. But I have uh, people in, in England that uh, I only have to call up and the friendship is resumed exactly where it left off. That certainly. How do you think English people compare to others around the world? Is there a definite English type, or is it difficult to...? Oh, I think there's a definite English type, yes. I think there's a definite English mentality to when... Sometimes when I'm with Belinda and I want to make a point clear, I become Willie Whitelaw just to explain it as an English term as possible. When I say I am a court, I you see where you are where you are if if you put on saying something wrong wrong in this you see I couldn't do what you what you I'm just not temperamentally right. I don't think I'm the guy although although of course I am a great friend of of uh, of Margaret uh, I think I would be even if uh, if I wasn't in politics. Of course, now I don't uh, jump to the glue. And it's endlessly correcting a record which nobody has challenged yet. Mm. <laughs> it's very funny, that sort of nervousness. But uh, Do you think of yourself as uh, an English type of person, a Russian type of person, or what? I don't think of that or at all. just multicultural? I just don't think of that for one single moment, because it's absolutely bootless in any case. My father was a German citizen and became British. My uncle, his, his brother, was a German airman who was killed in the First World War. His other brother is uh, Canadian, but lives in the United States now. His younger brother, who's still alive, is Argentine. And the sister of all those is Lebanese. Well, how can, how can you take it seriously? There's five different nationalities in one family, in, one, in, in brothers and sisters, one row. I can't take that seriously for a minute. Yeah, do you feel very at home in Switzerland? Is that? I feel, I've always said I don't feel absolutely at home anywhere, but I feel more at home in mo more places than most people. Mm. What about uh, when you are at home, if you're not working, what do you like to do? Do you, do you have hobbies and things like that? Or? Well, I like uh, walking, I like swimming, I like uh, sailing, I like driving, I like classical music. I like practically everything. I'm very incredibly inquisitive, not about people, but about things and how they work and why they work. And are you always trying new things then? Yeah. Yeah. Well, what are the more recent and uh, sort of uh, hobbies that you've taken up, which perhaps you didn't do before, or sports perhaps? Sports. I love watching sports. I can't really do them anymore. I could, I suppose, play triples because doubles is too. Years, yeah. But uh, tennis just becomes an annoyance now because I know my mind runs ahead of me and I know, ah, I can get that easily. Mm. And then it's passed and gone before I could move. But I'm still a great believer in, in cultivating very fast reactions. And I remember when I was uh, rehearsing to play King Lear in Stratford in Canada, 
during the rehearsals, I was wondering whether I hadn't left it a bit too late, because it's an enormous part, and you're there for four and a quarter hours or so on the stage. And then during rehearsals, I made a gesture in a restaurant and knocked a glass of water off the table and caught it before it hit the ground. And I thought to myself, if you can do that, you can bloody well play King Lear. And it gave me more confidence than any amount of rehearsal. The fact that my reactions were still quick enough to absolutely fly to the... And even yesterday, curious thing, I was out driving with somebody and there was a building site in the street. They were, they were drains or something. And he looked that way and didn't see anything coming. Then looked this way and there was a stream of traffic. And when it was over, he started moving and I saw a car coming across the top of that and I just pulled the handbrake with all my strength while shouting to him to stop. And he'd already started to accelerate. It stopped it sufficiently. I was going to ask you about your ambitions now. You have many ambitions. No. I don't really think I have any ambitions. Does that mean you've achieved everything you want to achieve? I'm very unsentimental about, uh, about achievement and things like that. I enjoy it. When I feel I've got the best out of myself, then I think that that's... Uh, a laudable thing, but as for actually the kind of questions I'm quite often asked is, what would you like people to say about you when you're no longer there? Or on one occasion, what would you like written on your tomb? I said, you know, I think the best thing to write on the tomb is keep off the grass, because <laughs> I'm just not at all sentimental about that. I never understand people who rush across the landscape because somebody's died in order to be present at the funeral. They should really have rushed before, you know, in most cases. I, I, I never understand the business of... Uh, do, you, do you feel you've been given the credit that you deserve? Well, now I do, you know, when you get surprised things like this. These are little consolations. And uh, I think that, on the whole, the law of averages works out pretty effectively. I think you're overpraised for some things and underpraised for others. Naturally, when you're underpraised, it... Uh, is more hurtful, but um, there are certain uh, moments when you're very highly praised and you have a feeling it's not the best thing you've done or the best thing you could do. So I'm not sure, but I, I love the pleasant surprises when suddenly they discover some old work which has been uh, neglected and thrown on the on the on the dust heap, and uh, suddenly it turns out to be get a wonderful press. There's one thing you've done that you're very proud of. Again, I think that I would much rather have plays or works of mine neglected and then suddenly find their level than to have something very highly overpraised which is then neglected completely. So that I, I don't think there's any rule about that. I, I'm not a critic's pet by any means. On the contrary, I think I've been rather shabbily treated on the whole. But I don't resent it very much, because I know that being able to do many things, I just appear somewhere else, much to their embarrassment. And I know one critic who got slightly loaded and gave me a very bad notice for my last play in London, Beethoven's Tenth. And he, when he was loaded, he said to people I know, Oh, I know it's unfair, but he gets such a lot of money compared with what I do. And I don't really want to believe that kind of story because it seems to me that it's a kind of conventional 
story about a critic, but I must say I was very annoyed by his attitude. Do you think you'll ever contemplate retirement? Well, I, con I contemplate retirement every evening, and then forget about it in the morning. Do you mind getting older? Does that bother you? No, on the contrary, I don't know what else to do. <laughs> but it seems to me that uh, you're, you're bound to get older, and... Uh, and you're also bound to die. I think that uh, life is meaningless without that. Uh, it's like a map without a scale. But do you find it an increasing nuisance getting the older you? Oh, yes. I do, but I'm very interested to see how the human spirit copes with it. Because there are also many consolations. Well, like people get up for me in buses. <laughs> I mean, uh, I'm not the kind of temperament, I'm not being a Willie Whitelaw now, I'm not the kind of temperament which uh, enjoys having an unfair advantage over other people. In other words, I would feel slightly embarrassed at winning a lottery. I would have felt that I should have done it by my own merit and not like that. So that when you give me the choice of one wish, then I, I say to myself, well, why not ten? I would prefer that. But better, I think, is not to have any wishes at all, because then you're on an even keel and you can do your accountancy with your soul much more easily than having to discount something which is fortuitous. Do you have great hopes and ambitions for your family? Oh, yes, that's quite different. Well, I just hope that they uh, realise their potential, that's all. Nobody can, nobody can uh, uh, wish for anything that isn't there. My son has chosen a particularly difficult profession, which is sculpture. But then so have I, so, my God. Are you glad that they're doing what they're doing? Quite... I'm very glad they're doing what they're doing, and I'm also glad that in the course of events, like at the end of last year, they opened a museum dedicated to my mother's family in uh, near Leningrad, which was opened with great pomp and so on, and I cut the ribbon. And that's really terribly touching, because you've got there five, six generations of people who are all devoted to the arts, in fact, it's a long family tradition of that family, and it's extraordinary how it's kept its freshness because they went from one thing to the other. But we all have rooms in there. I have my little room with uh, videos and photographs and foreign editions and things like that. And my mother, who is a painter, has her paintings, which I brought across from Switzerland. And next door is a, a little room with uh, five of my son's sculptures. And it's all part of the same family tradition, and it's in a building which was built by my great-great-grandfather as an architect, so that the whole exhibit is housed in what purports to be another exhibit. It's all part of the same thing, and it, that's really very touching. And uh, I'm not a great believer in uh, artistic traditions of that sort, because they can be constricting. But I think because this family, or members of it, uh, have changed direction the whole time, they haven't stuck to one thing. Many architects, many artists are very close, but then also quite a lot of people that have done other things. Uh, it's kept its freshness in the most extraordinary way, because usually it doesn't last that long. <laughs>